This is Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt, and welcome back to... Oh, Cherry Greg. Hey, Cherry Greg. Hi, thank you for that. Nice to see you, too. Coming up, we're talking about a very concerning issue, Avi. Overworked air traffic controllers. With increasing passenger numbers, the workload for airport employees has significantly increased. Now, a New York Times investigation shines light on the risk of overworked personnel. Reporter Emily Steele is with us to talk about an increase in near collisions, outdated equipment, and threats to passenger safety. A lot of stuff I had no idea about. Well, it's the part of the travel experience you don't see. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is concerning. We want to hear from you. Perhaps you work as an air traffic controller, or maybe you have some experience in this area, or you just have some questions for our expert. Give us a call, 888-477-9499. Email studio2 at whyy.org. Also, later in the hour, we hear about a new WHYY podcast called Young, Unhoused, and Unseen. We have Yvonne Laddie from Temple University and WHYY suburban reporter Kenny Cooper to talk about the crisis of youth homelessness. Looking forward to that. But before we go there, we want to start in Center City. On Sunday night, a protest moment went viral. Avi, you have the shovel as we kick off our news discussion. Yeah, it uh, it certainly went viral. This was part of a larger rally organized by the Philly-Palestine Coalition. Mm -hmm. Protesters stopped at Israeli-owned falafel shop Goldie in Center City, and this is the chant that has drawn a lot of attention. So that's Goldie, Goldie, you can't hide. We charge you Mm -hmm. with genocide. So here to tell us about what happened and the reaction to it is WHYY news reporter Carmen Russell Sluchansky. Carmen, thanks for joining us on Studio 2. Of course. Thanks for having me. So what was the purpose of this protest and sort of break down the give us a a breakdown of the scene and and what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, the this was organized by the Philly Palestine Coalition, which has been probably the most active organization in the area uh, protesting the um, the Israel attacks on uh, on Palestine. You know, they've been very pro-Palestine, obviously, it's right there in the name. Uh, they're composed of a number of organizations, including, you know, local organizations, including Black Lives Matter and others. Um, we've reported on them quite extensively here mm-hmm. in WHYY, a, a lot of the things that they do. And so this particular event, they were going around the city protesting. Um, you know, in the timing was probably had to do with the fact that it was the end, the end of the ceasefire was coming up and, mm-hmm. and Israel started to bombard Palestine again. Um, so, and as Philly uh, Palestine Coalition has pointed out, the thing that has gone viral, uh, the thing that has elicited an incredible amount of reaction all the way up to the White House, uh, was just a three-minute stop for them at, 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 you know, a pretty popular falafel spot. Yeah. And so, talk about that spot, because you mentioned three minutes, mm-hmm. but the person that owns Goldie is very prominent. Why did they uh, stop in front of Goldie and uh, take this particular action? Yeah, so it um, the owner is an Israeli-born local chef who owns actually owns along with his partner uh, a number of restaurants in the area, a few chains, um, you know, and he's a, a, a beard award winner, so very prominent in the area of uh, food scene and so forth. And why exactly they they 
targeted uh, him. It, it kind of might depend on when exactly you ask. Um, they had put out uh, literature before on what is on a um, on their Instagram account, and I want to point out that you can't find it now because Meta actually shut down their Instagram account. Hmm. And so um, they basically said they accused uh, him of co-opting of Israelis of these Israeli restaurants of co-opting Palestinian food and making it their own and calling it and they put this in quotes like Israeli food and so forth. So that was one thing. Now it turns out actually um, they were also uh, whether or not this was post facto or not. It's it's kind of unclear. Michael Smol- uh, Samolanov, excuse mm-hmm. me, Salomonov, yeah, Salomonov, yeah. thank yeah. you. Um, had, was apparently also, they said, giving money to an organization called United Hatzalah of Israel, which, isn't, which is kind of t- um, indirectly related to IDF and the fact that they provide medical services, food, and those kinds of things. So they're also accusing him particularly of, of uh, basically aiding and abetting the IDF. The it's Israel an EMT defense. group. It's a, it's a voluntary yeah. ambulance group. Right, right. No, exactly. Okay. They don't, you know, they don't, let's, let's put it this way, Goldie isn't providing munitions Okay. And so let's zoom out a bit. Cause, and, and just full disclosure, Michael Solomonov has been on Studio Two. Sure. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and so political leaders have responded um, pretty aggressively uh, to this. Um, what has been the, what, what have they said? Well, I mean, up and down um, the, you know, the political spectrum uh, from local to federal, they've all been saying that this was highly anti Semitic, unjustifiable. They shouldn't be targeting restaurants. Um, and this includes everybody. Uh, both of both Pennsylvania senators have said this um, locally. Josh Shapiro, the governor, and uh, even the president has come out. And I should say the the president's spokesperson, the White House, has come out and said it was unjustified and not justifiable. Well, we will keep our eye on this. Thank you so much. Uh, that is WHYY news reporter Carmen Russell Sluchansky talking about this viral protest moment that happened in Philadelphia over the weekend. Carmen, thanks for being on studio too. Thank you so much. All right, let's uh, more political talk here. Yeah, Sherry. more political uh, talk, and we're we're talking about um, politics getting dicey. Well, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman's mm-hmm. campaign—they bought a cameo video that encouraged indicted New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez to keep going amid <laughs> calls for him to resign. Sounds and supportive. That sounds, I, I, I sounds wanna, positive. And get this, Avi, uh, the cameo is done by. Um, expelled former Congressman George Santos. Take a listen to this. These people that want to make you get in trouble and want to kick you out and make you run away, you make them put up or shut up. You stand your ground, sir, and don't get bogged down by all the haters out there. Stay strong. Merry Christmas. I love the Merry Christmas um, adage on the end. But Santos, he made that appearance on Cameo, which is a video platform. Yeah, wait, yeah, you got to explain what Cameo is. Yeah, it's I'm, a video platform. I'm looking platform out for the listeners here. That allows you to pay a, quote, celebrity to record a short video message. Santos charges about $200 per video, and he describes himself as a former congressional icon. So basically, Fetterman's oh, wow. campaign paid him this money to do this video. And then Fetterman posted the video with the text that says, Quote, I thought my ethically challenged colleague, Bob Menendez, could use some encouragement given his substantial legal problems. So I approached a seasoned expert on the matter to give, quote, Bobby from Jersey some advice. So he's trolling him. He's trolling him. Got it. And he's very good at it. He is good at it. Uh, You know, this is his brand. We've talked about this before. And it's the reason we've talked about John Fetterman on this show probably 
10 times as much as we've talked about, for instance, Bob Casey. Yeah. Because um, he does, a, he is very good at getting people's attention in this way. I do wonder mm. at one point, what point's going to wear on people a little bit. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, hey, maybe do a little more senating and a little less trolling. Um, Ooh, senating. I like that. I just made that up. <laughs> um, but look, this is what he does. Mm-hmm. This is what Fetterman does. And I guess he'll keep writing this until uh, people finally say enough. But I just wonder if we're getting a little closer to that moment. I don't know. Well, I mean, all seriousness, Fetterman was one of the first members of, of the U.S. Senate to call him Menendez to resign after federal bribery charges were filed against him. 30 others have mm-hmm. joined him since then. So it's a serious matter. And, you know, this is the second time Menendez has been indicted. He beat the first uh, round of charges. This is the second time. So people want him to step aside and Trolling is something people do when they want you to take action. So. It's also the we'll second see. time that he's used Cameo for this purpose. Yes. He enlisted Snooki I remember to troll that. Mehmet Oz, who, I of course, that. was famously you know, from New Jersey in Fetterman's framing. Like a little... Anyway. Yeah. Let's move on to our newsmaker. All right. Uh, we mentioned on the show before that Philadelphia-based pharmacy chain Rite Aid mm-hmm. filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in October. And since then, they announced closures for about 18 stores in our region. That leaves it up to patients to find a new pharmacy. But drugstores are already struggling with overworked technicians, theft, and health insurance red tape. And now, some black and brown neighborhoods in particular are at risk of becoming pharmacy deserts. Here with us now is Marcus Biddle, Health Equity Fellow for WHYY's The Pulse. Marcus, welcome to Studio Two. Hi, thank you for having me, Avi, Cherry. Yes. Glad to be on. Yeah, so Rite Aid has been very unique, um, Marcus, when it comes, when compared to other pharmacy chains due to their presence in underserved communities. But I want you to just sort of lay, set the scene. Why are they so challenged now to where they have to file bankruptcy and are forced to close so many stores? So this is a very complex uh, issue uh, that is very multi-layered. But uh, to zoom out a little bit, I think that there's um, two uh, main takeaways uh, about why Rite Aid specifically. Um, so the first is that um, pharmacies around the nation are struggling very, very mightily financially, whether it's due to labor costs, low labor, uh, retail theft, as as Avi had mentioned. And it's having a trickle-down effect, um, not just with some of the big box chain pharmacies or, you know, the the big three pharmacies that we think of, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, but it's also having its impact on independent pharmacies as well. Mm. Uh, And when you zoom out to, you know, when you examine some of the issues that are affecting uh, Rite Aid, uh, for instance, you know, by filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, Comparing that with independent pharmacies, they're not multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, but but the, the thing that I want to really uh, key in on uh, is just how unprecedented this is to have a large pharmacy, um, albeit uh, based in the Philadelphia region, but nationally, uh, to have to sell off its assets, um, nearly uh, $3.5 billion um, worth of their mm. stores and assets. So yeah, one of your sources called it a Farmageddon. Yeah. 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 So, um, and and this was a, a term that was uh, coined uh, actually this fall. Um, there were a couple of protests and walkouts of hundreds, thousands of pharmacists around the country that were threatening to uh, basically protest the fact that they are dealing with these labor challenges. Mm-hmm. They are dealing with uh, retail theft. They are dealing with uh, pharmacy benefit ma- managers and how much that is uh, kind of 
creeping up on their their finances. And uh, but I but I think you know within that short stint of having pharmacists nationally that were protesting and walking out uh, about these issues, it's also I think very uh, emblematic of sort of the larger picture of years worth of pharmacies that have been experiencing these losses that go far back even before the pandemic. And, and I want to make clear because most people don't understand this is that you know pharmacists are saying they're 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 paid pretty well but they're being overworked can you hone in on what the overwork issue is because they're doing things that typically pharmacists 10 years ago didn't have to do yeah and and i think one great example of this is the covid-19 pandemic um during the covid-19 pandemic pharmacists and technicians were doing a lot of things that they probably wouldn't have normally uh been doing such as administering medications uh giving uh covid-19 vaccinations uh being the uh point in some cases especially when you look at you know CVS's model with their minute clinic um having an on-person mm-hmm. uh, uh medical staff on site for people. So there are different things that are kind of compounding this this paradigm. Um, and and pharmacists now are, are finally having enough of it. It sounds like they were doing a lot except putting medicines <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah. right. And the, the core job. So what happens to the patients who used to pick up their scripts at these Rite Aids that are closing? Where do they go? And um, what how does that trickle down to the pharmacies that remain open? Yeah, that's a big question, right? And uh, in talking to a pharmacy expert um, at Temple Health for my story, um, one of the biggest concerns, and this is, I think, something that uh, is a little bit unique to the Philadelphia region just because Rite Aid had such a prominent presence within the Philadelphia region, um, probably even more so than some of the other bigger pharmacies, is that the fear is that now that Rite Aid pharmacies are shutting down in the region. It's going to put a lot more stress and pressure on independent pharmacies um, that are probably in nearby neighborhoods where Rite Aids um, were located. So in talking to a source, um, the biggest concern really is, and this kind of you know deals with a more complicated issue of pharmacy benefit managers, is that pharmacies are just not going to be able to restock the drug supply for patients that are rolling over their scripts that Rite Aid might have otherwise fulfilled for the patients. And I want to just play this clip. Uh, Rob Franco is executive director of the Philadelphia Association of Retail Druggists. And he's talking about how insurance payments will determine if these independent pharmacies will take on new customers. If that patient is going to bring in profit or not, the chances are with the way the reimbursements are nowadays, pharmacy is probably going to lose money on that patient. And so we only have, we have less than a minute, uh, Marcus, but I want you to just sort of like what, what is going to happen to folks? Because now these independent pharmacies could possibly uh, turn them away. Pharmacy deserts. Talk about the impact. And you have about 30, 30 seconds or so. Well, uh, I think the, 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 the big thing to think about is that, you know, Rite Aid could always come back in some capacity, maybe not as a large scale pharmacy, but there are ways for it to reinvent itself. So the hope is that um, once it does, um, that people will be able to uh, get services that are just beyond buying uh, medication and drugs at a pharmacy. And hopefully that will close that gap of pharmacy deserts in the region. That is Marcus Biddle, Health Equity Fellow for WHYY's The Pulse. Thanks so much for joining us on Thank Studio you. Two, Marcus. Your debut, not your last time on. Thank you so much. Um, what's next, Cherry? Well, coming up, we are in the busiest air travel season, but a shortage in air traffic controllers is leading to some serious air safety concerns. 
New York Times reporter Emily Steele is standing by. Lots to talk about. Stick with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back, folks, to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Millions of Americans will be flying during the holiday season. Airports, they're going to be jam-packed with travelers and more flights. This puts more stress on an already overstrained air traffic system. There have been a number of recent reports of the air traffic controller shortage, outdated equipment and technology, and far too many near misses between airplanes on runways. A recent investigation by the New York Times found that there were multiple near collisions each week between commercial airliners. Reporter Emily Steele and colleagues have been investigating what's behind these safety errors and found that staffing shortages are a big part of the picture. In their recent article, they talked with dozens of controllers and found they are overworked and demoralized. Some are turning to alcohol and drugs to survive the long shifts and the stress. Emily joins us now to talk about the state of air safety. Emily Steele, welcome to Studio Two. Hi, thanks for having me. If you have questions about aviation safety or about the work of air traffic controllers, perhaps you are one yourself, give us a call. 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. And so, Emily, uh, when you go to the airport, many times you see this tower, but I don't think many people think about who's in there and what they're doing. And I've been trying to imagine what it takes to do the job of air traffic controller, what type of training you need, what is a job like. Could you take us into that world a bit and explain what's going on in that tower? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that for the passengers who are flying on the thousands of flights every day, people forget that there's people in those towers and in the radar rooms at 313 facilities across America. And this is a a workforce of people who spend hours a day glued to monitors or scanning the skies and they can be a last line of defense against the crashes. The, this is a very high stakes job that comes with intense pressure. And what has been happening with this workforce recently is that it has faced chronic understaffing conditions. Before we get to that, Emily, like what types of machines they're looking at? What type of data are they getting? I'm just trying to, again, picture this room Uh, And I'm thinking of a place with lots of bleeps and bloops and screens, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's totally off. I mean, what are they what information are they taking in and then how are they processing that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. There are actually um, a couple of different types of control rooms. There are what people typically think of as an air traffic controller. Those are the big towers that are Mm -hmm. at the airports, and they oversee and direct the takeoffs and landings into and out of airports, and including the nation's very busiest airports. And um, and then those controllers will um those talk to the planes that are taking off from landing and then there's another set of air traffic controllers that work in what are referred to as radar rooms that are essentially uh dark rooms that are 
um, often several several miles away from the airport, and mm. they they kind of track these monitors that have dots on screens, and they are directing these dots on the screens, and those dots represent airplanes, and they it's their job to make sure that those airplanes stay a safe distances apart and um, and go on on their way. And then there's another set of controllers that work at what are called air traffic control centers. And those um, controllers, they they work in these, these bigger facilities and where there's often hundreds of people working there. And they oversee the, the planes that are flying thousands of feet in, in the air. Um, something that when we first got into this reporting, I thought was a really good way to think about this is that people call it the highway in the sky. And so mm. just like when you're driving a car on this uh, on the road, there are rules and there's directions and there's traffic um, patterns and and um, and regulations that you have to observe. There's the same set of or a different set, but there's a set of rules that that planes follow in the mm. skies, and it's the air traffic controller's job to make sure that the planes are um, flying safely and going in um, and, and and not getting too close to each other. Well, can I just a quick follow up on that, Emily? And we're talking with Emily mm-hmm. Steele, reporter for the New York Times. How much of this job is kind of like following a protocol, and how much of it is judgment? Because I'm thinking about something like weather. Like, I mean, it would seem like there has to be some judgment involved. Like, how bad is this storm coming in? When will it pass through? And I, I, I'm tr- just trying to understand how much of it is like, hey, we just have to hit check these boxes on the way to letting a plane take off or land. And how much of it is like kind of making a call? That's a really good question. There is. Um... When you get into this world of air traffic control, the first thing that everybody talks about is something called the 0.65, which is an FAA order Mm. that essentially describes and prescribes all of the air traffic control procedures and even the, the phrases and the terms that they need to use for providing directions to the pilots and, and the various aircraft and planes. And so there really is a very detailed rule book, mm-hmm. real rule book and playbook that these controllers do need to follow. Um, but at the same time though, too, they do make judgment calls and they do have, um, they they do have to step in with their experience to know what what's safe and what's not safe but it really does all go back to that what they call the 0.65 yeah and so in your reporting you note that there has not been a fatal crash involving a major u.s airline in about 14 years since 2009 but that close calls have been happening on average multiple times a week this year um, can you explain to me, uh, given what we now understand about what air, air traffic controllers do, um, how is it that these sort of, they, they're, they're highly skilled, they're supposed to know all these rules, and now there are all these close calls happening. Explain what a co- close call is and how this is, is happening now. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, so the way that we actually got into this reporting was at the beginning of the year. I don't know if you remember, but Southwest mm-hmm. had a giant meltdown and it was right around the holidays last year and it disrupted travel across the country and everybody was up in arms about how terrible air travel is as a consumer. And so we started to dig in trying to figure out what was behind that and why and what were the issues there. And as we started reporting, there were a number of these close calls that started to happen. There was one at JFK where the planes came very close to colliding. And then there was another one in Austin on a Saturday in February in Austin, Texas, where a FedEx plane nearly a heavy huge fedex cargo jet nearly landed on top of a southwest flight that was Mm -hmm. taking off for cancun and so we thought wait a minute what is going on here like you think that air travel is is very very safe which it is and there hasn't been a fatal crash involving a major u.s airline since 2009 and but we thought why are there these close calls happening and what what is behind this what is going on and so we started to make some calls and there were and we started to talk to people in the world of aviation and what we quickly came to realize is that the way that um that 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 the aviation safety net has been established in america is that there's several layers of protection Mm -hmm. so there are pilots who um it's their job to keep their planes safe and then there's technology and there's there's something for instance called tcas it's t-c-a-s on major on airplanes that essentially it's like a transponder on two airplanes that can talk to each other so if they get too close it will Mm -hmm. tell one plane to go up and the Mm -hmm. other plane to go down so that they don't get too close so there's a technology and then another real layer of protection is these air traffic controllers and they are supposed to, to kind of be scanning the skies and making sure that these planes don't come too close together. And and what we found is that there is this huge shortage of air traffic controllers, so much so that virtually every single facility in the United States is understaffed. There's mm. 313 facilities in the United States air traffic control facilities, and 99% are under staffing guidelines. Uh, and I want and to jump in so here, Emily, that, Emily yeah, just so, real quick, just get into some of those root causes, because Liz commented, I think we need to give these folks some credit because there are so many planes in the air at one time, it amazes me there aren't crashes every day. So these folks are doing yeoman's work, but why has there been this chronic understaffing um, in, in the control towers? That's a really good question. Um, so it really dates this this issue with staffing dates back to the early '80s when the Reagan administration replaced thousands of controllers who all went on strike, and so then they rehired or they hired a new class of controllers, and controllers can only work for so many years, and they have to retire by the time they're fifty-six. So every 20 years or so, there are these giant waves of departures as those controllers become eligible for retirement, and the FAA has struggled to keep pace. 
And so let's let's look at because we talked about the world of air traffic controllers. They're being overworked. What does the schedule look like? And I can imagine you have all these rules you have to follow. You're um, you know, you need to pay attention and to these little dots on the screen. And if you don't, people's lives could be majorly impacted. Um, so talk about how the, the what the reality of this understaffing looks like. This is something that was really eye-opening for me when we started, when we did this reporting. The way that many of these air traffic control facilities are making up for that staffing shortage is they are requiring these air traffic controllers to work overtime shifts. And so they work, many work six days a week and up to 10 hour days. And it's not just that they're working six days a week, but many work a schedule known as the rattler, which is essentially this round the clock schedule where the time that the shifts change every single day of the week. And if, 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 um, if that helps, I can kind of detail, there is a controller in the Northeastern part of the United States who works in a dark radio radio radar room and I um, I talked with him several times over the year and he really described what this meant for his life. The, the way that it worked is the beginning of his week was on a Thursday and a Friday and his shifts typically began in the afternoon and would go for eight hours. And then the rest of the week, work week, they started earlier. So they would start 8 a.m. on Saturdays, 6.30 a.m a.m. on Sundays, and then he would come back that same night. So he on Sunday, he would work from 6.30 to 2.30, and then come back at 10.30 p.m. that Sunday wow. night to work around the clock until Monday morning. Mm. So sometimes there's only eight or nine hours between those shifts. And so he was then supposed to have Tuesday or Wednesdays off, but he was almost always called in to work overtime on one of those days. And the impact of this schedule, what people told us is is really extraordinary. What he, what he would say is he would try to go to sleep in the beginning of the week, of his work week, at 2 a.m. And then later in the week, mm. he would try to go to sleep at 7.30 p.m. But then even though he was exhausted, he just found it impossible to sleep. Mm. And if he was just, it was just, he was trying to flip his circadian yeah. rhythm multiple times during the course of one week. And and on on top of that too, it's like these are these are people. They're yeah, not just yeah. um, they're not robots. And so they go home and they have families and they have little kids and they have sporting mm -hmm. events and and all of these different things that we all have. But yeah. it it just yeah. on top of this high pressure those job. stress is very very job. Yeah. Yeah. And you you wrote I think we're talking about the same person here that it, one day he had consumed the equivalent of ten cups mm. of coffee by noon. Uh, just to stay awake, <laughs> which is amazing. I mean, you, you mentioned they're not robots. However, right. multiple folks have commented and said, hey, maybe robots or AI should be part of the equation here. Jim says this whole process should be so much easier and automated by now. It's 2023. Stacy said, can AI fill the gap or replace air traffic controllers? Well, of course, this is a touchy area because we're talking about people's jobs. But is there a way that technology can at least augment or help fill some of the gaps that have emerged with this staffing shortage? Uh, that's, you know, it's a really interesting idea. The 
the thing that that makes me think of immediately is that a lot of these facilities, a lot of these FAA facilities lack very basic technology. Mm. And so to jump from where they are now to AI seems like that would be a very sizable mm. um, hill to climb. Like in Austin, for instance, that's where it was the, the site of one of the closest calls this year that airport lacks technology that lets controllers track planes on the ground and warns them of imminent collisions. Yeah, no ground so radar at all. That, so to jump no to ground AI. Radar at all. Yeah. Right. And so what that means though, is that on foggy days, controllers have no idea what's happening on the runways or the taxiways. And they've started to use just a publicly available site. It's called flightradar24.com that you can mm. pull up on your computer. And they've started to use that in the tower, even though that's not sanctioned by the FAA. Wow. And so it makes me wonder if um, if a, a busy airport like Austin doesn't have ground radar and there hasn't been the money to install that system, mm -hmm. what would it take to go from there to right. all of a sudden having robots doing right. this yeah. sort of work? And, if and it's not just... It's not just ground radar. What was so shocking in our reporting that we found is very basic technology, like elevators have been malfunctioning. There's been air yeah. conditioners that either leave the, the rooms either broiling or freezing. Yeah. In one place in Texas, somebody had to bring light bulbs in from home to be able to put those into the facility. Yeah, so that, that, so was, it that just was like the... That was really eye opening, Emily. Yeah. yeah. And that was pretty shocking to me because I wanted to just sort of, you know, having air traffic controllers have to go up so many flights of stairs <laughs> to be able to just do their jobs, having insects bug them when they're trying to do, you know, really important work. Have I just want to say this has all sort of come to a head now because I understand the air traffic controllers are the ones crying for help. Um, they're afraid that something, a, a catastrophe, is, is just waiting to happen. What can be done? What is in the works to sort of help fix this? Because I'm thinking, I didn't even realize, you know, you see these towers, you don't really think about all the things that go into keeping us safe. But um, how concerned should the public be? And is there an effort to, to sort of correct this problem? So when you look at the statistics, right, there are 3 million passengers a day in the United States who fly on an airplane. There's there's tens of thousands of flights that cross the country every single day. And there hasn't been a major fatal accident, including a commercial airline since 2009. So if you look at the statistics, things are still very, 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 very safe. Mm -hmm. But you talk to these controllers and what they worry is they just really see this system fraying and they worry that nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to um, happen to fix this until a fatal crash occurs. Mm -hmm. And many of them think that is imminent. And so nothing is happening um, now to, I to, to, to help uh, well, I fill some to, of these shortage, yeah. shortages? Yeah, I think I just want to say before we get to that is there is an air traffic controller that I talked to. His name is Neil Burke, and he worked at the facility that directs traffic in the New York metropolitan area. It's called N90, and it's regarded as one of the most complex control rooms in the in the country, in the world. 
And what he said is that he caught himself making mistakes. He caught other, he saw other overly tired controllers making mistakes. And what he said, I think he put it really well. He said, what happens when you stretch a rubber band too much? It breaks, he said. And that's what that's what people are worried about. And so, you know, we're, we have about a minute and a half left in this segment. Sort of, are there efforts to fix this? Because I know money um, would help, but what are the next steps now that we know this problem exists um, and the air traffic controllers are sounding the alarm? Um, are there solutions that could be implemented? Yeah, and so in response to our reporting, the FAA, a spokeswoman said that the nation absolutely does need more air traffic controllers and that they are working to try to um, to hire more. For the current fiscal year, the FAA sought $117 million to train and hire 1,800 more controllers. But the thing about that is training is very difficult. Many controllers fail. And there was recently a group of experts who released this report that said that the FAA's current hiring plan is expected to have a negligible improvement over today's levels, mm. so much so that they think there will only be a net increase of fewer than 200 controllers by 2032. Mm, that is not a very optimistic message to end on. However, that is where we are ending it. Uh, Emily Steele, reporter for the New York Times, done a lot of great reporting on what's happening in our skies, a lot of which we do not see. Thank you so much for joining us on Studio Two, Emily Steele. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to take, put the spotlight on youth homelessness in yeah. Philadelphia. There's a new uh, podcast released jointly by WHYY and Temple University that looks deeply on this issue. We will talk to two of the folks behind it, our colleagues coming up on Studio Two. Stick with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thousands of young people in Philadelphia are without stable housing. They're moving from one shelter to another. They're couch surfing or sleeping on the street as we enter the coldest months of the year. A majority of them are black or Hispanic and a third are pregnant or already parents. The city is putting over $8 million towards the problem, but is it enough? Is this truly a solvable problem at all? Joining us now are WHYY reporter Kenny Cooper and Yvonne Laddie, director of the Logan Center for Urban Investigative Reporting at Temple University. They are the hosts and producers of a new collaborative podcast, Young, Unhoused, and Unseen. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much. And so, Yvonne, I want to start with you. The new podcast takes a look at this issue of youth homelessness. It's a big issue. I want you to lay out the problem for us and sort of explain why it is so pervasive. Well, I mean, if you live in the city, you know that rents are up. Minimum wage is seven twenty-five an hour. Um, 
There's so many young people that are in unstable homes. We have gun violence. We have a large LGBTQ, LGBTQ population that doesn't always get the support that they need from their parents. There's just so many factors that lead to young people becoming homelessness. We're also the poorest big city in America. It's just issue after issue piled on issue that's really affecting young people. Kenny, what drew you into this topic? Uh, you know, why shine a light here? Why now? I think the why now part is, is what you kind of mentioned earlier about that HUD funding. You know, the city received $8.8 million, which is the first and largest grant that Philadelphia has received of its kind to address this issue. And, you know, you know, of course, the city can obviously receive another round, but then receiving another round is kind of dependent on the success of Philadelphia's new programs and initiatives and bolstering of services that mm-hmm. it's going to do over the next two years. So it's like a little trial run from the federal government. Essentially. You know, they want to see proof of concept. They want to see that what Philadelphia is going to do or is already doing is, is working. Hmm. And so I want to sort of peel back the layers here because people think they know what homelessness looks like. They go on the streets, they see people outside. It can be kind of in your face in Philadelphia. But when it comes to young people, it's a little bit different. And I want you to sort of explain what 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 it looks like when we're talking about youth and then define what youth means. So I think the way that it looks is just it's a lot more invisible. You know, that's part of the reason why we named the podcast, you know, Young Unhoused and Unseen. That unseen aspect of it is just the fact that people don't always view uh, young people on their normal day-to-day base basis that are unhoused, or at least they don't think they are unhoused. So in some situations, they may be couch surfing, they may be living at a friend's house. And in all these situations, even the children or young adults themselves may not even consider themselves homeless. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, if you don't have a steady place to lay your head at night, a steady place to say, you know, this is my home, you know, then that's what you're facing. And Yvonne, it's not just unseen, right? It's often uncounted. Do we have a real sense of how many young people are unhoused in Philadelphia? No, we don't, because the way they're counted is, you know, the coldest day of the year, people go out and count people on the street. And that's really not the way youth homelessness looks like. In Philadelphia, I mean, it is like Kenny said, people couch surfing, staying one friend to another. A lot of time kids that are don't have any place to live are in group homes, are in shelters there, you know, might spend a week in the street then find themselves in a shelter. And then, you know, there's so many that are in foster care. I mean, the thing about the podcast is just so powerful is that we really get to hear from them and they tell us their stories. And it is pretty, pretty intense and it's very complex. And so it is a problem that I do believe is is solvable because of the numbers, but it's going to take because a lot of, the numbers, of effort. Can you elaborate, elaborate on that? I mean, the numbers that the city's giving out is, you know, like 1,500. You know, they have the money now from HUD. They have organizations that are like focused on this, but so many of these kids fall through the cracks and it's really up to all of us to really look at the young people in our lives and see if they need support and stop wearing blinders because someone's coming to school or coming to work um, with, you know, clean and with sneakers on that look nice and don't look like what we think homeless people look like. It doesn't mean that they don't need help. And if we don't help these young people, then they're going to grow into adult homeless people. 
And so let's dig into the young people. I know you you spoke to some some of the young folks. We have a clip from Michelle Neal. Before we play it, I want you to tell us a little bit about Michelle. So Michelle was uh, or is still currently uh, facing, you know, some housing instability. But she's also the lead co-author of the city's, you know, grant proposal or report to help kind of create this roadmap for the city out of its uh, youth homelessness crisis. Um, And, you know, she uh, had a very powerful story to share with us. She wrote the poem that, you know, kind of leads into the report. But she also shared with us, you know, some really, you know, I guess, really relevant thoughts about the situation. Yeah. And here she is talking about some of the misconceptions that people have about people in her situation that you wanted this or that you did something to deserve being homeless. Well, you don't want to work or anything. That's why you're homeless. Or you must have not managed your money properly. That's why you lost your house. Or, you know, you must have messed with the wrong people. That's why you got kicked out or you need to do better. You need to have better decision-making skills. And that's not always the truth. And so what is the truth, Yvonne, in Michelle's case? Well, the truth is is that a lot of the young people that are homeless face families that are filled with abuse. In the case of Michelle, you know, it was a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of physical abuse. Um, It's not a choice. It's something that, that, that happens to them that they're forced into. We talk to young people whose parents are addicted. Um... But abuse and lack of love, honestly, seems to be a really big driver of homelessness. And, and I want to follow up with that because one, what struck you, Kenny? I mean, you're fairly young. What struck you about talking to these young people? Um, because you start the podcast by talking, by saying this is a solvable problem. So what struck you? When you I, I think what struck me when I speak to a lot of the young people in these stories is that they're, a lot of them are about the same age as me. You know, mm-hmm. I'm only 25. Uh, Michelle, in this case, is actually older than me, Um, you know, and, you know, it kind of makes me evaluate the people in my own lives. You know, do they have enough structure and supports? You know, some of my uh, friends growing up, you know, thinking back, did they have the right, you know, care and structure and stable housing, you know, when they were moving and bouncing from place to place? You know, it makes you really think back on all the people that you kind of come across in your own life to say, Mm -hmm. you know, they were probably touched by this issue. Hmm. Yvonne, we've mentioned several times that it is hard often to identify whether or not a young person is facing housing instability. So what are the strategies for reaching this group? Because you can have the services, but you have to connect them with those services in order to be effective. So how do you go about making those connections? Well, I think a lot of it is their caseworker. And, you know, I'm a professor at Temple. I've been a professor for a while. A lot of it is the colleges. There's Mm -hmm. so much support that we can offer. I mean, I've had students come up to me and say, I don't have enough to eat. You know, it's it's when these bells go off, not just saying, oh, well, I'm sorry. So you you can be late on that Mm -hmm. assignment, but like digging deeper into it. A lot of it can be done in the schools, elementary school, high school, like paying attention, neighbors, Like, I think we need to pay more attention Mm. to what's going on around us and be more proactive. The Mm. city does have a lot in place to help them. Schools have a lot in place to help them, but we have to make sure that they're getting those services. And I want to talk about the podcast. Um, Listen to the first episode. The big focus is this grant money that you talked about, Kenny, and, and just how it's a big opportunity 
Um, why start the podcast there? Because, you know, I, I think that's where, you know, that's where the story kind of begins. You know, if the city is truly to kind of solve this problem, it needs money, it needs resources, it needs funding. And that $8.8 million is kind of, you know, that is part of the solution. And I say part because, you know, as we kind of take this journey throughout the rest of the podcast episodes, you see the people that may slip through the crack, that may not be receiving this money, that may not, you know, uh, receive the money out of choice or because, you know, their situation may be different. And ultimately, we end the podcast uh, with an episode on the suburbs. And obviously, the suburbs of Philadelphia aren't a part of the grant. But, you know, that's an issue, again, where a lot of people don't necessarily know that, Mm -hmm. you know, there is a homelessness crisis in the suburbs Mm -hmm. and it's touching the youth as well. Um, And, you know, a lot of people may picture the suburbs, the mainline area is kind of this this, you know, huge uh, abundance of wealth. And while that may be true in some cases, that's not unique. I mean, that's not uniform. You know, that's not true for everyone. And because of that, you know, kind of conception, uh, misconception, if you will, about the suburbs, it leads to this lack of acknowledgement of the problem. So we kind of end back up at square one where you have some municipalities, uh, you know, township level, uh, borough level who don't necessarily ha- have not come to that point yet where they're just like, you know what, this is a crisis that we need to address. Mm. So it's sort of unseen on the individual level, but then also on the bureaucratic level. There's, yes. There's a sense of unseeing it as well. Fascinating. Um, Kenny Cooper, suburban reporter for WHYY. Yvonne Laddie, director of Temple's Logan Center for Urban Investigative Reporting. Thanks to you both for joining us today on Studio Two, and congratulations on the launch of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And just a reminder, the, the mm-hmm. podcast is called Young, Unhoused, and Unseen. It's a production of WHYY News and Temple University's Klein College Logan Center for Urban Investigative Reporting. You can download it right now, Cherry, yes, wherever I you did. get your pods. <laughs> That's right. And the next episode is out tomorrow. Well, that wraps up our show, Avi. I think Lots it does. to talk about yeah, today. Are we out of time? Yeah, we yeah, are. Yeah, okay. we are. And our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Adam Staniszewski is our engineer for today. And from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Cherry Gregg. And I am Avi Wolfman-Aaron. We'll talk to you tomorrow.